You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. Today, we have a very special guest, Stanislav Tomas, who is a lawyer from Lithuania who has been charged, tortured, and beaten up for destroying Nazi flakes. And he will tell us his story and that of Lithuania. So today we have uh, Stanislav Tamas, who is a Lithuanian attorney. He was ranked one of the top uh, human rights attorneys in the world, and he's litigated many cases in both the European Human Rights Commission and the UN Human Rights Commission. So thank you for joining us. How are you doing? Thanks. Uh, Great. Great. Thanks for inviting me. So defending human rights cases is not something where you can get a lot of money from, unlike corporate law. So what made you go into human rights uh, cases or defending human rights laws? Um, well, <laughs> I think that uh, I was involved into this area by the Paxos case. I, I have spoken uh, about that case. It's, it's, you know, the case of the impeached president of Lithuania. So actually, I was working as his parliamentary assistant. And that's, you know, basically how I uh, got it. And then from that human rights case, basically, I just continued. And uh, I I continued so successfully that the Lithuanian government has already lodged 14 motions to the United Nations asking the United Nations to prohibit me writing complaints to the United Nations until the end of my life. Wow. (laughs) If they sent 14 different, wow, that's a lot. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> that's 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 basically the, the, that's a lot. So they uh, usually say that they disagree with the complaints that I write, and uh, that th- this is th- this does not correspond to reality, and uh, therefore uh, they ask to prohibit me writing complaints until the end of my life. And uh, by the way, I have already a prohibition to write complaints to the Lithuanian courts until the end of my life. Wow. So you cannot practice law in Lithuania then, more or less? Yes. uh, Yes. It is a lifelong prohibition. So actually, the scale of the repressions uh, of the Lithuanian government is much wider than the scale of the repressions by Russia. Or Belarusia. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Look, uh, in Belarus or in Russia, there are no lawyers who would be prohibited, you know, practicing until the end of their life. Mm-hmm. And e- even Russia, how crazy Putin wouldn't be presented by Western media, the government of Putin never asked the United Nations to prohibit someone, you know, practicing law until the end of his life. <laughs> that's that's something specific to the Lithuanian regime, to their culture. I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about how it came to be in the privatization, but um, go ahead, look, continue this and then we'll talk later about that. Yeah, uh, basically, uh, the uh, Lithuanian government, uh, this is something very typical for the Lithuanian mentality that is promoted by the government. So if you take the case of the impeached President Paxos of Lithuania, after the impeachment, he was immediately prohibited until the end of his life to run for elections once again. Uh, for presidential elections, for parliamentary elections, for, you know, and he was also uh, prohibited until the end of his life to be a prime minister, a minister, and there is a list of public functions that he wouldn't be able to perform until the end of his life. Is the prime minister uh, selected by the parliament? Is the president, like, how, how does one become the, is it both through the parliament or is there a direct election for either? Uh, the president is elected directly oh. and the the prime minister is appointed by the parliament uh, so it it's it's the function of prime minister uh, is uh, uh, like in the united kingdom actually so uh, so he was prohibited until the end of his life to become a prime minister or a, just a minister just you know to, wow. to expel him from the political life and then i have won uh, his case at the European Court of Human Rights and at the United Nations Human Rights Committee. And the reaction of the Lithuanian government was to reject the execution. They refused to execute those judgments of the European Court and the United Nations. And then they also prohibited me 
to practice law until the end of my life in Lithuania, and they have lodged 14 formal motions to the United Nations asking them to prohibit me. So this shows the level of stupidity, cruelty and aggression, brutality and aggression of the Lithuanian government. Because, you know, this is so stupid because it is obvious that the United Nations, they have never done this, you know, to prohibit a human rights lawyer to write complaints on human rights. That that does not exist. So, of course, you can prove that you are right, that the human rights lawyer made a mistake, of course, mm-hmm. or that his interpretation is wrong. This is the, this is the most common, actually, uh, in our practice. You know, the government just, you know, they, they present their arguments and obviously they can prove that uh, some of my interpretations are wrong. And it means that, you know, the case is dismissed, the case is lost, but they go much deeper and they also organize a huge uh, campaign against me in the media. They present me as a person who has a fake uh, PhD diploma from Paris, despite the fact that, you know, it is verifiable on the website of the French government. You know, they have a list of all PhD holders. They uh, present me as a person who who has a fake uh, uh, professorship in law because, you know, I am also a professor of law and uh, I do not teach right now, but uh, this is a title that is given like a diploma. So they also pretend that this is fake. And there, there is a huge, uh, huge campaign in the Lithuanian media in order to present me as a total criminal. Um, actually, uh, in Russia, uh, the campaign against Navalny is much softer. It is much more democratic, uh, you know, um, Navalny. But he also has a different function in that he's been litigating against gas companies for shareholder dividend loans. But it's a little complicated. But yeah, what what, what question? I guess most people don't know much about Lithuania in the U.S. Most, (laughs) uh, and it's probably willful. But can you explain a little bit about the government and how it's controlled by just a handful of few families and the oligarchy? Yeah, uh, uh, basically the... uh, the Lithuanian system is uh, uh, much more oligarchic than in Russia. If uh, in Russia, uh, let's well, let's take uh, the 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 time of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Lithuania and Russia are both a parts of the Soviet Union. Uh, obviously, the communist economy uh, is collapsing. It it does not function well. People are not satisfied with with the manner the. Uh, communist system functions. And at that point, as uh, let's take uh, some of the articles, for instance, of David Kennedy. Uh, he's a professor at Harvard Law School. So he, write, he writes uh, uh, in his articles that in that period, uh, uh, the capitalism in the Soviet Union became so wild that in the United States, there was no, never such freedom of capitalism, like in the Soviet Union in 1990. I've read about the Russia case. They call it the shock doctrine. Is that the same yes. thing that happened in Lithuania? Yes, yes. It is a shock therapy when in one night they uh, just destroy all the Soviet rules and then uh, capitalism is absolutely unregulated and it is much wild, wilder than uh, in, in America, than it ever was in the United States. And obviously, there are already because you know, it, from the beginning of uh, of the period of the term of Gorbachev, there was uh, already uh, business authorized in the Soviet Union. So there was local, uh, th- there were already local millionaires at that time, and then suddenly those local millionaires they get the opportunity to to buy everything from the state oh. because you know all the companies. In Lithuania. Okay, so that's how they got the oligarchy. Yes. So basically, all the state companies are on sale. And uh, they are sold for $1 for 25 cents. Wait a minute. So the state actually sold these companies not at value, but did they keep any shares in return for the sale? Or is it just a free-for-all? No. uh, the, The state just gave it everything just gave everything as a gift because you wow. know so it's not even selling uh, amazing um 
uh, yeah. this is actually sounds a lot like the Bolivian case, but much worse. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Uh, actually, it, let's take, for instance, the Majeki refinery. So it, it is a uh, uh, oil production factory in Lithuania, one of the biggest in the Soviet Union. You know, Soviet Union is a huge economy. Uh, it was, you know, it had problems, but still it is a huge economy with a lot of factories. And all those factories are sold for 25 cents, American cents. Oh, my God. So the question is, why? Because, you know, there are uh, there any homeless person has 25 cents. Why does this factory goes to particular families and not to those homeless people and not, for instance, to me? Because I also had. That's an excellent question. Why? <laughs> and the only explanation is corruption. That's the only explanation. There is no official. Well, their official uh, position is that. Uh, those factories had debts and uh, their market value was low. But, you know, their their market value was perhaps low. But those factories, they still function, you know, 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And they were built because with factories, you need like a big upfront uh, cost. So you have to yes. like spend about 30, 40 million before you can even build a factory. So, and yes. they're still functioning. So, yeah. Yes. Yes. They, they are still functioning. And uh, also, they start to send land in Lithuania, but the land is also sent for, you know, for $1, you have huge uh, territories. So, uh, the families that were in governance. In, in the government in 1990, they basically, as I understand, uh, uh, the, the, the political families, they distributed everything through corruption for 25 cents. Oh, my. So it was wheeling and dealing. Yeah. And until now, uh, those people control the economy. So that's basically how the Landsbergis family uh you know the 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 family who are descendants of the nazis uh they uh take over the soviet economy and they continue to control it in russia it, it is much softer uh in russia we have many oligarchs in russia that were imprisoned uh, we know that some oligarchs had to leave L L russia but th this was a conflict be between the government and russian oligarchs so the very fact that many russian you know uh billionaires had to run away from russia it shows that there was a conflict between the government and those billionaires. I do not say who is, you know, who is right, who is wrong, but there was a conflict. In 2019, we've done an episode, at least one of them, uh, with regards to Bill Browder. So check that out. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, at least it shows that there's something going on such that there's like a power control or something like that. Yes. Yes. You know, and the, those, because, you know, uh, in general, the society is interested uh, uh, in having different conflicts at the top of the governance, because uh, then it becomes slightly more democratic, you know, because, you know, the, the, there, there is a conflict within the elite. In Lithuania, there was never a conflict within the elite. Elite always divides the country. They organize those fake elections. Uh, they manipulate elections. They control the media. Only once Paxos won elections against the project of the uh, government. So uh, it, it happened just once in Lithuania. And then in 13 months, Paxos was thrown out. He was impeached with a prohibition until the end of his life to, uh, you know, run once again for elections and with a prohibition for his lawyer to practice law in Lithuania and also until the end of his life. So that, that's basically how I... Uh, started to focus uh, on uh, United Nations <laughs> because, you know, I have lost uh, any possibility to practice law in Lithuania. So I just took um, the, the, the complaints to the United Nations. Uh, I had basically <laughs> no other option. Okay, I have a quick question. Yeah. So uh, going back to the 2004 election, they had two elections. So the first time um, we got a Paxos won, and then they impeached him. And then you got Valdas Adamkus who won. And how is he connected to the, I guess, the uh, the 
powerful families in Lithuania. Is he one of them? What happened there? Yes, obviously, he, he was just appointed by them. You know, um, uh, there is a tradition in Lithuania, in this, the same tradition and as in Russia, uh, that former president appoints the uh, new president. Like, he, formally, it is not an appointment. Formally, he just presents him and asks the people to vote for him. That's what happened with Putin when, you know, Yeltsin transferred power to Putin and then Putin to... Medvedev, Medvedev back to Putin. So in Lithuania, it is absolutely the same. The, this scenario is, you know, one in one, uh, you know, it, it corresponds absolutely to what we see in Russia. Uh, and Valdas uh, uh, Adamkus, obviously, he was an appointee of uh, uh, the previous president. And um, this is how it functions. Unfortunately, uh, this functions in this manner, and uh, as I understand, you know, the United Na uh, the, the United States, they, uh, the the government of the United States, let's say, they need an ally who is uh, obedient and who is ready to commit whatever crime the United States propose, like like the case with the secret prison, because you know, I do not actually imagine France to establish a secret prison in France. They would not, because that would be against it. their entire branding is, hey, we're at least not as bad as America. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, uh, France is also a good ally of the United States. You know, France is a country that, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, will, I always think uh, of France as a good friend of America. But still, you know, France would never do this. The United Kingdom would never do this. The Germany people wouldn't. There'd be enough like a backlash with the people enough that they would not do it. Yes. Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. There is a, a difference in culture because, yes, in France, people go and they protest and they start rioting. In Germany, it's the same. People go and protest and require their rights. In, in Lithuania, uh, people are uh, much more passive. But then, why are they passive? They are passive because it is the media, it is the television, it is, you know, the journalists. So you talk about the media. Is it private or is it state-owned? Is it a mix of both? And how is it controlled, I guess? Uh, yes, uh, a part of the media is state-controlled. Uh, another part uh, is private, but we do not know the names of the owners because they are registered in offshore jurisdictions that do not disclose the owners. Oh, wow. So uh, it is impossible to say who is owning uh, the media. But uh, the general practice is that, you know, the media is, uh, is absolutely... Uh, they have just one opinion. That is what I do not like about Lithuania and Lithuanian culture, let's say, because uh, there is always just one opinion. Opposition never, gay, never gets access to presenting their ideas. Uh, and uh, even, you know, even when Lithuania loses cases at the European Court of Human Rights or at the United Nations, the media presents this as a victory of Lithuania and, you know, there is no execution. Uh, human rights cases are never on agenda of the Lithuanian journalists. Uh, I mean, mainstream journalists that, you know, have basically provide information for 99% of the population. And that's how they create very passive culture. Uh, the, there are huge differences in mentality. Uh, you know, it, it, of, I understand that, you know, the United States have created a, a network of secret prisons. Mm -hmm. But despite this, uh, you know, uh, Americans, like an average American, he has a lot of democratic values. He has, he was abroad with this idea uh, about Bill of Rights, about the de Declaration of Independence, and the content of the Declaration of Independence. So, you know, uh, and then, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the text of the Declaration of Independence is on the uh, $100 bill. So this is also a symbolic, symbolic uh, uh, artifact. Yes. <laughs> uh, just a quick question. Um, are you guys in the Eurozone? 
Yes. Also? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. We've done an episode on the euro and how it just like forces austerity among everyone. And I, I forgot if Lithuania had already adopted the euro or not. Yes. Yes. Lithuania is in the eurozone. Oh, yeah. boy. So, Sorry about so, that. Yeah. Well, no. Uh, yes. So uh, in general, you know, in, in America, there is an intrigue. You never know exactly who will win, Democrats or Republicans. You know, still you have a doubt. <laughs> you know, sometimes. <laughs> but but you know, in Lithuania, uh, it's never like that. It is never like that. Uh, in Lithuania, you always know who is going to win, and uh, this is a uh, th this is a very boring uh, electoral uh, electoral culture. So since this is so boring, people are not really interested in politics, and that's how they you know leave it. Uh, somewhere in the margins of their life. How are people's like livelihood? Is it easy to get jobs? Like, what are the biggest problems that ordinary Lithuanians face? Yeah, well, Lithuania is a very poor country. Uh, comparing to the European Union, the salaries are increasing, uh, but uh, they have uh, almost the same prices in the shops like in Paris. Oh my! Wait, if they have the same prices, then it's almost like twice as expensive for the average. Oh my! I did not realize that. Yeah, yeah. and then, uh, well, the, unfortunately, this is the situation. And then you, there, there's also a huge migration. You know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, Lithuania had a population of uh, 3.8 million people. Now they have just uh, 2.5 million people. What happened to the 1.3 million people? Oh, they left the country. And obviously... Because of the economy? Yes, because of the economy, because of the human rights abuses. And uh, actually, uh, what we see is that the most intelligent part of the population left. The most active people left. Because, you know, to live the country, you need to have a little bit of uh, uh, adventurous nature because, you know, you go abroad and, uh, and the, the population is decreasing. Even people from Syria, there, there was, you know, a war in Syria and there were refugees coming to Lithuania. Even those refugees left Lithuania. Wow. <laughs> this is a very dramatic drop in the population. Almost one third have left. That's uh, yes. uh, shocking. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Over a million people. So what is keeping them afloat? Is it NATO, European Union, US? Like what's keeping the government afloat? Oh, yes. Uh, of course, uh, donations from the European Union. Uh, uh, the greatest part of the Lithuanian budget is a donation by the European Union. So uh, as one of the poorest regions of the European Union, they are always on, uh, on don subsidies. Does, do the subsidies ever get to the people or do they get eaten up at the top? Usually it is for the elite. So uh, subsidies do, do not help to reduce the reduction, you know, the, 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 the immigration, the, the reduction in population. Uh, this is a major problem, I would say, because, you know, the population is dropping dramatically and uh, people do not see opportunities. And in, in general, you know, the European Union could use its subsidies to democratize Lithuania, mm -hmm. to promote human rights in Lithuania. But then if you have a democracy, the people might vote in a way that you don't like, and then you might have to do a Maidan like Kugan. <laughs> yes, it is not the interest of the Lithuanian elite to promote democracy, but it might be the interest of the European Union. So the European Union might uh, have a fresh uh, and critical approach to Lithuania. For instance, I do not understand why the European Union refused to apply any sanction against Lithuania for uh, the secret prison. That would be logical because, you know, uh, Russia is under sanctions for doing much less. There are no secret prisons in Russia, you know, and, 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 and there are so many sanctions against Russia. And that's very true because it seems like, well, from what I've interviewed for the past two or three days, it seems like there is a lot of dissent that's curbed. There's even mild dissents like we need an investigation or something like that that's been curbed. So 
Another really disturbing thing, and the reason how I found you, has to do with the Lithuanian government's extremely problematic stance in regards to the uh, Baltic Waffen-SS members. So there have been erecting lots of monuments for these SS members all over Lithuania, right? So can you t- talk a little bit about that and how you got involved with it? <laughs> yes. Um, well, I was involved just by a part of my origin. I Usually, I do not present myself as Jewish uh, because, you know, I am of mixed ethnic origin. I have, you know, several, <laughs> several, uh, uh, basically my, my, my forefathers were of different ethnic origins. And uh, for me, my Jewish identity never was dominant. But uh, of course, you know, it was accumulating over the years. Now, uh, if you take Lithuania, they have built uh, about 100 monuments to Nazis during the last 30 years. And for the Lithuanian government, it was very important to find heroes. And the problem, well, this this is a problem when you try to create a mono-ethnic society. Because, you know, if you take a society like the American society, uh, I think that an average American may be proud of certain black people, uh, he may be proud of certain white people and a certain uh, uh, people who look Asian, because you know uh, the the objective of the American society is to construct a society that is multiracial and where all the races feel themselves good, <laughs> like you know <laughs> to avoid conflict. <laughs> so. That, that's the ideal. I, I understand that there are m- many problems on this path, but still, you know, this is the ideal that is declared for many years. In Lithuania, there was never such an ideal. Uh, the only ideal of Lithuania from the very beginning was to create a mono-ethnic society, a society that is serving one ethnicity, the Lithuanian ethnicity. And then when you declare that your culture should be mono-ethnic, uh, you ne- uh, th- then uh, you need to find heroes in the past. And if for the Lithuanian ethnic culture, it is very difficult to find um, heroes in the past because all the scientists, they were Jewish. Uh, all the rich people, usually they were Polish or Russian. And then uh, uh, there was a country that... They also don't want to honor Soviet-era heroes because that makes yes. communists look good and they can't do that. So they've banned yes. all of those who are even ethnically Lithuanian. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And Lithuania actually, as a mono-ethnic state, was created only in 1918. There was a country that was called Grand Duchy of Lithuania, but the official language of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania was Russian, and during the existence, middle, you know, in the Middle Ages, during the existence of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, for 500, 600 years, they have not published even a single book in the Lithuanian language. So this puts your ethnicity in a situation when you are jealous, when you think about those Jews, those <sighs> Russians, and you want to revenge. And... Uh, the only heroes, uh, like pure Lithuanian heroes, that they are able to find, they are Nazis. And that's, that's a huge problem because, you know, they could, they could just declare that they create a multi-ethnic society and they are proud of those Jewish scientists and they are proud of those Russians who were... Uh, the monarchs, the kings of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, the, the Grand Dukes of Lithuania, that they are also proud of them, despite the fact that they have never written even a single word in the Lithuanian language, but they were great people for other achievements. That could be their position, but their position is that this, those other ethnicities, that they are not us, they are our enemies. They were keeping us in slavery. And the only heroes that they find are the heroes uh, from the times of Adolf Hitler. Yes. And that's, that's how, you know, they, they built, they arrived to build 
100 monuments to those heroes. Uh, okay, um, first one. Can we talk a little bit about General Noreka? Is that yes. his name? Am I pronouncing his name correctly? Yes, yes, <laughs> very correctly. Uh, yes, uh, Jonas Noreka. So uh, he was from a very poor family, as you know, many Lithuanians in the, those times. And he has written the book uh, that is called uh, Raise Your Head High ethnic Lithuanian, where mm. he explains that all the problems of Lithuania are connected to the Jews, that oh, okay. there is a Jewish conspiracy against ethnic Lithuanians, that Jews are building businesses and keep on keeping Lithuanians in poverty. Uh, and this is a, in a country uh, where actually at that time, any Lithuanian could start business. Like <laughs> it was a already a free country. Uh, but but even before, even in the Russian Empire, any Lithuanian was able to start a business if he wanted. Simply, you know, there are cultural differences. You know, uh, well, uh, th there is a huge problem in Lithuanian ideology. So c the contemporary Lithuanian government justifies uh, murdering Jews by the fact that those Jews were communists and businessmen. Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, the thing about it is that if somebody is murdering, like like it, the reason why a lot of Jews became communists was because of the anti-Semitism. So it's like, yes. right? Yes, and also because they were poor. You know, co communism is is a, is an ideology of basically poor people, and of course there were there uh, there were a lot of Jewish businessmen. But then, <laughs> if you say that many Jews were communists, then you deny this conception. Then you actually recognize you cannot be a communist and a businessman at the same time. And if Jews were on the both sides, it means that Jews were like any other ethnicity, actually. Yeah, that they had a varying ideology, like every other ethnicity has, like far yes. right, far left, everything in between. Yes, yes, of course. You, you know, so, some some Jews were running banks. Uh, other Jews were living in poverty, and they became communists. Uh, and uh, the same was with Lithuanians. Uh, many Lithuanians were communists. So yes, Noreka wrote his book where he actually, uh, you know, calls on Lithuanians to boycott Jews and to exclude them from the society. And uh, then he... He was a lawyer himself, so that's um, already like a big violation, but okay. Yes, yes he, he's a lawyer. And then he, uh, he joins the Nazi military forces. Uh, the Lithuanian Nazi government uh, of 1941 appoints him a governor of northern Lithuania. Uh, then uh, he he issued a lot of uh, orders, you know, managing Holocaust. Like uh, he was renting Jews for different Lithuanian businessmen. As in slave labor? Yes. Uh, oh, my God. Okay, I did not know about this. Can you explain what happened and how it worked, I guess? Yes. Uh, th there were businessmen that, were, uh, that, that needed workers. So Noreka was giving them juice for the works, and they were paying him money. Wow. And the juice were working for a little bit of food before the death. Because, you know, there was, uh, according to their plan, uh, Jews had no escape. They had to, to die, but before the death, they had to work. So um, uh, it, it, the Lithuanian government says that Noreka was uh, executing the orders of Germans. And that's how they, you know, tried. To... Even Nuremberg has said that does not matter. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yes, obviously. In Nuremberg, they also said that it was Adolf Hitler who was responsible of everything. And I had just to execute the order but no it, it does not function in this manner but for me what is the 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 brightest proof of the guilt of noreka he drafted the business plan for the skies death camp wow. so if you if you draft a business plan for a death camp of a nazi for a nazi death camp it means that you like the idea of putting the people in the death camp it means that you know you uh, 
you you search how to earn money from those slaves um and this is something that uh you cannot do uh without your personal intention uh to harm those people then also another thing like um when lithuanians liberated lithuania according to the lithuanian government or when germans occupied lithuania according to uh the majority i think <laughs> uh, scholars uh the lithuanian government issued an order that you know uh the jews had to wear uh the david star on the clothes so and this is another example that noreka had uh, the evil intention from inside he was not pressed by the germans because when he is appointed to the office of the governor he uh issued another order that jews have to ha have to wear two david stars one in front and one on the back insane so this also shows that he had internal hatred against jews because you know okay yes he he came to the office all the jews are with the david star but no he wanted them to wear it in front and on the back so so th this is also his uh, personal intention then the lithuanian government says that noreka started to resist uh, nazis germans and that's what that, that he changed his his mind but for me this is total nonsense so look uh, in 1943 germans have lost the stalingrad battle the moscow battle and the leningrad battle so these are the biggest battles during the world war ii so germans have lost all those three battles and after stalingrad even mussolini uh came to berlin in order to convince adolf hitler to start negotiations with the soviet union because even mussolini understood that after the stalingrad battle after that defeat there are no chances to win the war so after the stalingrad battle noreka uh was uh, uh he opposed lithuanians to to be recruited to uh, to, to the war so he started to oppose rec recruiting a uh, new lithuanian boys and guys you know of 17 years to the to the army and this is uh considered by the lithuanian government as uh you know as uh, as a resistance to nazi <laughs> are you currently pouring coffee all over your desk because you don't have a mug maybe you ruined your mouse pad with all that hot coffee solve both problems by going to streamlabs.com forward slash historically forward slash merch where you can get a mug or mugs and mouse pad with the historically logo and support your favorite podcast and stream speaking of streams catch our live streams on twitch rockfin and youtube to learn more about feline friend and revolutionary vladimir Ilyich ilanov by tuning into our sundays with lenin on twitch.tv forward slash historically rockfin.com forward slash historically or search for us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to our Substack at historically.substack.com to check out other episodes of the podcast and our newsletter. That's historically.substack.com. Um, one thing that you do mention in one of your blogs is that uh, Noreka even um, wrote a letter to the um, Minister of Interior asking for money in exchange for death camps. Like, what happened to the money? And you also said that his death camp project included, like, gas chambers? Yes, uh, it included uh, um, uh, 40 ovens, crematorium, to burn the, the bodies. Um, uh, Lithuania was using gas chambers uh, even before the Nazis, actually. Uh, but uh, the reply of the Lithuanian government, at that point, the Lithuanian government replied him that they had already three death camps and wow. they had not, not enough money for the fourth one. Wow. So, so uh, basically his uh, death camp was not uh, finally established, but he was asking for that money. 
uh, and he was explaining them that this would be profitable. So the, the position of the Lithuanian government was that we have already three death camps, we don't have money right now, and they are not that profitable as you say. <laughs> oh my God. So, uh, but, but you know, he earned a lot of money uh, because they were selling in even the socks of Jews. Oh, wait, wait. So after they uh, gr- grabbed them, or at least took them from their houses, they would steal all their clothes and start selling them? Yes, yes. They were selling their, all their property, tables, beds, clothes, and even socks. Oh, my God. Okay. Oh, Jesus. So, uh, and-, and then uh, the, com- the contemporary Lithuanian government says that uh, that money was used for hospitals, schools, uh, for public expenditures. Yeah, but, you know, this is not the correct manner to increase state incomes. That sounds ridiculous. And yeah, I mean, most states do it without murdering half the population or whatever it took. (laughs) Yes, uh, yes. Uh, In total, Lithuanians murdered uh, 211,000 Jews, like 97% of the whole population. Uh, And uh, the percentage of uh, murdered Jews uh, in Lithuania is higher than the percentage in Germany. So in Germany, they left more Jews alive. (laughs) So even at... Yeah. Wow. I don't know what to say except wow. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, for Lithuanians, it was very important to kill Jews because in this manner, they wanted to prove Germans that they are also... Aryans, that they are also higher race. So if you kill so much Jews, it means that you are a higher race and, you know, Germans will like you. This was their mentality. This was what they were thinking about. So I have a quick question. Have you read his granddaughter allegedly wrote a book about him? Have you read sorry, Sylvia something? Have you read her book at all or no? Yes, Sylvia Forti. Yes, she wrote a very interesting book, uh, and she explains how she understood that he was a war criminal and how shocking it was for her because, you know, from her childhood, she was, you know, abroad in this uh, spirit of loving Lithuania and uh, in the spirit of glorifying her grandfather because he was a hero of Lithuania and she was believing that myth and she was trying to justify her grandfather by you know the standard formula that germans uh, ordered him etc but then when she started to research herself she changed completely her opinion about her grandfather Uh, she writes that she found two major documents that changed her mind Uh, first of all she found his book she found his book where he writes that, you know, Jews are the reason of all the problems of Lithuania. This is an intentional, uh, it, this, is, this book is something that comes from his inside. It is not something imposed by Germans. And then she also found an uh, order signed by Noreka where he uh, orders to close all the Jews, to arrest all the Jews and transport them to the ghetto. And then in the ghetto, they were murdered. And if he was the person who was ordering to transport them into the ghetto and he was governor of the uh, region, he uh, was aware you know, that that was just uh, the first stage of murdering them. So... Uh, that's how she changed her life. And she actually, she addressed the Lithuanian government asking uh, to remove his honors, to remove uh, his monuments, to rename his uh, streets, uh, his schools, uh, he, to, and to uh, cancel his uh, cross of a night. You know, cross of a night is a, a public decoration in Lithuania, one of the highest, uh, the second highest actually in Lithuania. So uh, she is campaigning already for many years against her grandfather. And uh, the Lithuanian government says that, you know, she does not understand uh, <laughs> that she's partial. Um, but it's her grandfather. So I don't know. Yes. I, I, you, if she was partial, she'd be partial in the other way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, obviously. Obviously. So, yes, uh, she is making a huge contribution to this fight. 
but you know, narrator is not the only one. Actually, you know, as I told you, that there are. Oh yeah, yeah. Because this is a different one. You're going to have to answer these questions again, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are so many Nazis that are glorified by Lithuania because Lithuania has actually no other. Uh, oh, well, look, actually, Lithuania could find writers who were writing in the Lithuanian language. But then the problem with those writers is also uh, that they were ethnically partially Jewish. So they were not pure Lithuanians. This, this is a, but yeah, like, you know, you could focus just on the Lithuanian language. You know, so, okay, the, the person was Jewish, but he was writing books in the Lithuanian language. So why not, you know, glorify this kind of people? Or, you know, actually, I don't think it is impossible to find other heroes. I understand, you know, Lithuania has, like, well, unfortunately, the, the Lithuania has little of history. Like, you know, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania was a Russian state, actually, because they, their official language was Russian, and they never had even a single book in Lithuania. But still, you know, you could find uh, people who are not related to, to the war, for instance, to declare them, you know. Uh, uh, look, uh, there are so many little nations in Lithuania, in the world. In Wikipedia, they call him a quote-unquote architect but he was the minister of infrastructure and he's the yes. great grandson of the current foreign minister right no no great grandfather of the current foreign minister so um, yes. his name is uh Landbergis of uh Viata yeah yes uh well you know uh wikipedia is not the the most objective source of information except some of it is horrific i've been doing a small twitter thread and one a croatian friend let me know that they had actually called the head of the croatian puppet state ante pavlic a lawyer and that's kind of like calling hitler a painter and so i've been kind of following (laughs) and so it's because they just let anyone edit it and nazis seem to have more time for all this crap (laughs) yes exactly exactly okay that's a good point uh hitler was a was a painter (laughs) yeah they did and so i looked at uh viotas Landbergis yesterday and it said he was an architect and I'm like architect of what so I thought you should clarify and in case somebody stumbles upon this Wikipedia um what exactly did he do and what happened <laughs> um yeah so uh Vitotas Landsbergis gave off to Adolf Hitler in June 1941 he joined the Nazi military forces and he was on the same on the first day of the war with uh, the Soviet Union. He was uh, appointed um, a minister of infrastructure in the Lithuanian Nazi government. And then in that government, many people do not understand what is infrastructure. So infrastructure are all public buildings, uh, public roads. And uh, one of those public buildings uh, was called Jewish Concentration Camp. So, (laughs) you know, uh, it it was a public institution and it was under his authorities. All the ghettos were under his authority. So actually, in the very beginning of the Holocaust, Jews were closed, uh, Jews were imprisoned in the ghettos. So ghetto is a part of the town where they could still work uh, privately, they could walk freely, but they could not leave this area. This area was fenced and uh, they had no right to leave that part of the town. And they, th- there was security, obviously. There were policemen uh, with guns. Uh, so at that point, many Jews did not understand the danger of that situation, and they were thinking that this is a temporary measure, that now they live in a part of the town that is called ghetto, but a little bit later they will be allowed to uh, resettle, but uh, a little bit later they were murdered, or uh, others were transferred to the death camp. So the life in the death camps uh, was much harder. So yes, uh, the Jewish concentration camp. This is uh, the official name of the institution 
that was uh, established in Kaunas, uh, the, the second largest Lithuanian city, and it was under authority of Vitotas Landsbergis. Then uh, he continued uh, living in Lithuania uh, until the end of the war, but apparently uh, Vitotas Landsbergis started to cooperate with the Soviet Union after the Stalingrad battle. So, you know, the Stalingrad battle is, uh, this, is the, the, this is really the, the point where a lot of Nazis understood that they have no chance to win. Because the Stalingrad battle, the, the, that was a total destruction of the of a group of German armies on the south of the so in the south of the Soviet Union. So apparently he started to cooperate with the Soviet Union and he became a Soviet spy in the Nazi authorities of Lithuania. So uh, is that why they let him live? <laughs> yes. Yes, okay. this is this is the only reason. Yes, <laughs> actually, uh, this is the only explanation that I have uh, that the Soviet Union allowed a Nazi minister to live in the Soviet Union, and uh, moreover, the Soviet Union gave him the honorary title of uh, uh, honorable architect of Soviet Lithuania. Yeah, because it seems like he came back to the Soviet Union and he was working on some sort of restoring old architecture for until he died. So it's like, that's a little weird. Yes, uh, this is a very uh, unusual uh, career for a Nazi uh, leader. <laughs> yeah, because for Noreka, he got shot, right? <laughs> yes, yes, for doing less. Was it the partisans or was it the Soviets who shot him? Uh, the Soviets, yes. Oh, okay. Uh, Yes, look, the duties of Noreka were lower than uh, those of Landsbergis because, you know, Landsbergis was a member of the government, a minister, actually. Mm -hmm. So he was voting on all the decisions of the government, of the Nazi government. And Noreka was appointed by them to, you know, a region, to, to, to regional governance. So uh, uh, despite being a much lower official, uh, Noreka was shut down. Uh, and uh, Landsbergis was allowed to continue his life in Lithuania. But for many Lithuanians who were uh, dissatisfied with the Soviet Union, Landsbergis was a very symbolic figure because they, first of all, they did not know that he was uh, cooperating with the Soviet Union, uh, that he was their spy in the Nazi government, but they were seeing him as a, uh, as a living Nazi uh, minister. Uh, as a symbol of uh, uh, resistance to the Soviet Union in 1941. So he became a very symbolic figure. And then uh, this is why, uh, this is how his son, Vito, who is also Vito Landsbergis, uh, became uh, leader of the anti-communist movement in Lithuania during the times of Gorbachev. And by the way, the, the times of Gorbachev actually were much more democratic than uh, contemporary Lithuania. So look, in the times of Gorbachev, the political parties that were openly declaring that their objective was destruction of the Soviet Union, those political parties, they were authorized. None of the, of the leaders of those parties was repressed. There was total freedom of speech during the times of Gorbachev. Uh, the opposition leaders, they had access to mass media. We, we do not have this in the contemporary Lithuania. So from the times of Gorbachev, there is a constant degradation uh, in freedom of speech and in democratic values in Lithuania. So yes, uh, the, the, the fact that a living Nazi minister uh, became a symbol of independent Lithuania and gathered a lot of people around him allowed him to appoint his son, Vitotas Landsbergis, as his successor and as a leader of the uh, new Lithuania that, was, that proclaimed you know, independence in 1990. And Vitotas Landsbergis, the son of the Nazi minister, becomes a speaker of the Lithuanian parliament. So uh, in those times, it was called a speaker of the parliament or speaker of the Supreme Soviet of Lithuania, 
and they start the privatization of the economy. They sell all the Lithuanian factories for 25 cents. Oh my. And that's how they, you know, establish their dominance in the economy and in the political life of Lithuania until present. And then this Vitotas Landsbergis, who was a speaker of the Supreme Soviet, he was uh, declared post facto a president of Lithuania. Like in those times, there was no function, there, there was no title. But then, you know, speaker sounds uh, a bit weird and president of the republic sounds much better. <laughs> so they, they declared him a third uh, post factum president. Now Lithuania has three post factum presidents of the republic. So th these are the people who didn't have uh, the, didn't use the title of president during their uh, official function, but they are recognized by the parliament as presidents uh, later, like nowadays. Uh, other two presidents of Lithuania are the Nazis uh, who continued the fight against the Soviet Union in the forest. So, you know, in 1942, oh, no, no, in 1944-45, uh, a lot of Nazis went to the forests and continued the fight against the Soviet Union in the forest. That is a NATO movie that's still on the NATO website called Forest Brothers, and I still don't understand why it's on their website. Mm. Oh, okay. It's on the NATO website. Yeah, Forest Brothers, that movie. But I didn't know about their stories. So these Nazis at the end were, they still had their arms, and then they were like fighting the Soviets after the war? Uh, yes, uh, yes, they still had their arms, and many of them did did not have um, any chance uh, of starting normal life because obviously the Soviet Union was not a democratic country, but still, you know, the Soviet Union was interested in millions of Soviet citizens being killed by Nazis, and then obviously the Soviet Union would persecute the, those Nazis, so they had n no other. Every country would persecute them. <laughs> I mean, if you fight against a country, it's hard to find a country that wouldn't do it. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, then w when you kill so much uh, civilians, because, you know, it, uh, look, if you take people like Noreika or Landsbergis, they, all their victims were actually civilians. Noreika, uh, we have no proof that Noreika would ever kill a Soviet soldier. All the people were civilians. And the same with Landsbergis. All his victims were just people living normal life who had no arms to protect themselves. But uh, obviously, those Nazis, they understood that they have no chance of starting, of you know, having normal life in the Soviet Union. And uh, they went to the forest. And then in the forest, uh, they had two leaders, uh, Vitotas uh, Jamaitis and uh, Ramanauskas the Hope. So, uh, Ramanauskas, the Hulk, and Vitotas Jamaitis, they are both declared presidents of the Republic after death. So, it was like... Oh, my. So, how long did they fight in the forest for? And did they get caught at all? Or did they continue to enact terror? Yes. Yes, they were finally caught. And uh, finally, the uh, Ramanauskas was shot down. Um Yes, he he was he was caught. Um, so, uh, uh, but you know, if you take Ramanauskas for instance, uh, the uh, Association of uh, Lithuanian Jews in Israel published a series of books about Holocaust in Lithuania, and they name Ramanauskas as the um, the most brutal Jew killer during Holocaust, and then the most brutal Jew killer is declared a president of Lithuania after death. <laughs> and, wow. You know, there, are, uh, there is a, a military uh, education center named after uh, Ramanauskas, uh, a monument of uh, Nazi commander Vitotas uh, Jamaitis is, uh, uh, is in front of the Lithuanian Ministry of the Defense. So the contemporary Ministry of the Defense, they have in front of it a uh, monument to a Nazi commander. Um, th th this is the contemporary Lithuania. And, uh, and actually, I think that uh, eventually we will win. Eventually, the new generation of Lithuanians, maybe the new, uh, I mean, the, the generation that is going to be born, <laughs> that, that, is go that, that will be born uh, within the next 
decades, uh, they will understand that um, it, it is not good to kill people for their ethnicity, for their race. And finally, I believe, you know, in, in, in a very good future of Lithuania. Everyone watched the YouTube episode, but can you briefly tell us, like, you were arrested for destroying his plague and the science center. Like, what led you to doing that? Uh, what led me to doing that? Um, in general, uh, I am partially Jewish, so it, it was not my dominant uh, ethnic identity. I, you know, because uh, my personal ideology is that it is good to be multi-ethnic. And if you have an opportunity to be multi-ethnic, it is better to identify yourself as multi-ethnic. But still, you know, a part of myself is Jewish. And uh, I thought that it is extremely insulting that the government of Lithuania has this monument in front of the old Jewish cemetery where, you know, a lot of Jews are buried. Uh, and then the, the, there were two factors. First, the monument, the Nareka plaque was in front of the Jewish cemetery, and then uh, the Nareka plaque was on the wall of the Academy of Sciences. And that Academy of Sciences does not have even a single plaque for a Jewish scientist because that sci those scientists, all of them, were Jewish. So it, it, it is a double insult, in fact. It insults both the former scientists and all the people in the cemetery. Uh, uh, of course, there was another factor uh, because, you know, at that point I was, I, I have realized that uh, I have won a lot of human rights cases against Lithuania and none of those cases is executed. So Lithuania refuses to execute all the judgments of the European Union, of the European Court of Human Rights and all the conclusions and views of the United Nations. So at that point, I was thinking uh, whether my activity has any sense. And uh, I also had a prohibition to, uh, to practice law in Lithuania until the end of my life. And I also was a bit insulted. In one of your blog posts, you write about how when you were growing up as a child, you felt a lot of racial discrimination in school. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. A lot. Because, you know, in the United States, usually people classify me uh, as white. In Lithuania, they always classify me as black. Uh, th th there, is, there are different conceptions. And then in the United States, there is actually, there is no problem of being black, actually, in mm. the United States. Because, well, it, it is not that terrible if you compare it to Lithuania. Okay. Because... The, the American society is not that racist as the <laughs> Lithuanian. So, look, if a black person in America says that he is American, that's normal. Like, yes. you, you just accept it as normal. Like, okay, he is black and he says that he is American, like Afro-American. Well, like, looking... Okay. <laughs> in Lithuania, if I say that I am Lithuanian there will be a huge hostile reaction immediately. Like uh, in, uh, if I post on, on Facebook that I consider myself Lithuanian, thousands of Lithuanians will write me that I am wrong, that I am too dark, that the color of my hair is black, and therefore I do not have the right to present myself as a Lithuanian. So... You know, the culture is very different. The culture is very aggressive. And I was also, uh, I, I was also, I, at that point, yes, I was a little bit suffering from the fact that all the Lithuanian journalists were writing a lot of shit about me. And I was understanding that all those Lithuanian journalists who write that my PhD is a fake and then uh, a, a lot of other stuff, that is insulting. They are doing this because the color of my hair is black. So I was perfectly understanding this. And I was, uh, and this is why I decided that, yes, uh, I am partially ethnic Lithuanian. Like, uh, I have 
this is also a part of my identity. But since the society uh, does not accept people with my color of hair as Lithuanians, and since the society reacts to people like me in such a hostile manner, I thought that uh, I need to um, strike that society back. And uh, of course, uh, a part of my motivation was to insult this culture back. And uh, I was very happy to do that. It is sad that I haven't done this long before. I could do it, you know, 10 years ago, but uh, I just <laughs> I just didn't. I'm glad you're reclaiming a culture that you can feel proud of. Everyone should do that. So are you um, still litigating any cases or have you stopped? Like, what are you up to next? Oh, yeah, I have a lot of cases. Uh, actually, 90% of all the cases against Lithuania at the United Nations, they are my cases. I'm running them. Um, so um, I still continue. And he goes more into detail about this. Uh, it will include the link in the description. So. Where can people find you? Are you on social media? Oh yes, uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, I am on uh, on on Facebook. Uh, Stanislavas Thomas. My my full name is Stanislavas. Stanislav is a uh, like more adapted international version of that name. Um, I'm on Twitter, like Euro Litigation. It is called. My Twitter account is, is named Eurolitigation. Okay, so we will include the link here. And thank you so much for doing the second interview with us. We feel very honored and hope you have a good rest of the day. And we really appreciate this. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> thanks a lot no for, worries. for inviting me. Yeah. Have a good day. Okay, yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.